This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, the latest station to join our ever-expanding empire of people that enjoy live, compelling, hopefully compelling, and entertaining overnight radio is WCCO in Minneapolis. And whenever we start on a new station, I put together a short list of people in that market that I'd love to get on the air to kind of make the people of that town feel like this is not just a nationally syndicated show that is trying to, you know, uh, force New York values down their throat, but that it's really an extension of a lot of their hometown interests and a lot of their hometown values. And shockingly, a lot of the things that people in Minneapolis are interested in are also things that people in New York are interested in. A lot of the things that people in St. Louis are interested in are people things uh, that, that folks are in Las Vegas are interested in. So when we uh, started airing on WCCO in Minneapolis, I put together a short list of folks that I was very eager to have on. And the person who was at or near the top of that list is someone who, when he was governor of the great state of Minnesota, actually did a weekly show on WCCO, still has a tremendous following. A lot of people around the country may remember him from when he ran for president and was considered, uh, this is, I guess, going back about uh, 16 years, very much a national rising star, particularly in Republican politics. Very pleased uh, to welcome to the other side of Midnight former governor of Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty. Governor, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for coming on the radio with me. Great to be with you and your listeners, Frank, and thank you for those kind comments. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. Governor, a lot of folks haven't seen you in the public eye for uh, some time. Uh, what have you been up to? Anything exciting? What's uh, retirement life? How much golf can you play? <laughs> I'm trying to find that out, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, well, I tell you, I, I uh, ran for president, and thank you for mentioning that, although most people understandably wouldn't remember it. I, I like to say that my uh, campaign for president was more brief than a Kardashian marriage, so it was quite short <laughs> but uh, and, and unmemorable in most respects. After that, I became the CEO of something called the Financial Services Roundtable, which was a trade association of large financial service companies that deal with all kinds of aspects of the economy and, and the, you know, capital formation, capital deployment around the country. And then I finished up that and was serving on some boards, but now I am nearly retired. So I'm enjoying that sort of lifestyle and uh, miss politics and public service, but I took it as far as I could. You know, it's funny that you talk about your brief presidential candidacy. My hometown is uh, heavily uh, Italian in ethnicity, and a lot of folks had you polling very high in my hometown just because they thought your name was Paul Lenti, 
L-E-N-T-I. Everyone would say, oh, I'm for Paul Lenti. I'm for Paul Lenti. That's, uh, that's who they were, uh, they were supporting. Hey, um, a lot of folks are wondering, because Minnesota has elected Republicans, Democrats, even a couple of independents over the years. Uh, the Republicans always seem pretty optimistic about Minnesota in the general election. Although it hasn't gone red in quite some time, even Walter Mondale managed to win Minnesota in 1984, the only state he ended up winning. Do you think, given what's going on in the country now, that there's any chance Minnesota actually may go red in the general election in 2024? Or are Republicans that are hoping for that being unrealistic? Well, I'll give you a little history and then and my opinion on your answer to your question. Um, Minnesota has the longest unbroken streak of voting Democrat for president of any state in the nation, dating back to Richard Nixon as the last time Minnesota voted wow. for Republican statewide. And by the way, that's compared to really liberal places like Hawaii and California and New York and Vermont and right. Massachusetts and others. So that's one measure. And by the way, a lot of political scientists believe that the Nixon uh, uh, election that I'm talking to is a so-called wave election, aberrational in that regard. And if you really want to go back to a base election, you got to go all the way back to Eisenhower to look at a true test or measure of when Minnesota last voted Republican for president. And there are certainly pockets of conservatism and Republicanism in Minnesota. But on a statewide basis, I was the last one to win there statewide in the year 2006. So that's going on 20 years. Mm. And that's not a good history. So I do think a Republican could win statewide, but it'd be foolish to say anything other than it's a uphill climb in my state. It can happen. Uh, Nothing stays the same. There's always room for hope and optimism, but the recent track record has been very poor. I do think, um, you know, regardless of what people think of Trump, because of of how frustrated people are with issues like illegal immigration, as an example, there could be um, there could be some hope in Minnesota, especially you know Nikki Haley or Trump. I think could give Biden a run for his money in Minnesota, but they always seem to fall at least a few points short. So that's the tale of the tape of politics and statewide in Minnesota. In your view, why has Minnesota, which look has a large rural community, which uh, has a lot of small town folks, a lot of uh, working class white folks that seem to make up the backbone of the Trump coalition? Why has it been so reliably Democrat when demographically, economically, it doesn't necessarily look like uh, solid blue states like New York and California, which most people would assume would go Democrat? What's behind the Democrats' electoral success in Minnesota? That's a great question, Frank. And and I think the answer in oversimplified terms is this. Republicans tended to do better in recent years where not many people live, and Democrats tended to do relatively better in places where more people live. And to be more specific, if you look at Minnesota, a map of Minnesota in terms of the political demographics and election results in a statewide race, you see a lot of red in the rural areas. But if you population weighed it, um, the Democrats sort of encroached into first the first ring suburbs and the second ring suburbs and more recently the third ring suburbs and Republicans ceded territory in those suburbs. And so, yes, we gained market share, so to speak, in rural areas, but we lost market share in the suburbs, particularly the second and third ring suburbs, because we long ago lost the first ring suburbs. And that doesn't mean those people can't be persuaded to come back. Uh, to be very blunt about it, I think they voted last time because uh, the way they did for Biden, um, because they didn't like Trump, some of them. And that cost us mm. uh, you know, a lot of margin in the race. 
Minnesota has a history a of, of elections. A lot of those folks, Frank, are, you know, um, you know, not all of them, but t- those swing voters in places like Minnesota and the third ring suburbs tend to be women and not just, uh, you know, a monolith of, of the gender, but also people with particular political demographic profiles as hmm. well. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, former Minnesota governor, Republican governor from Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty. Minnesota has a history of electing some colorful characters and some eccentric characters. Uh, We've seen, obviously, probably the best known example is Jesse Ventura, who's uh, an occasional guest on this show. Obviously, the former Saturday Night Live star Al Franken went to the Senate from Minnesota. But even going back to the 30s and 40s, folks like Harold Stassen, who seemed like a, a great uh, character in all of uh, American political history. What is it about Minnesota that you think has their electorate so open-minded to uh, electing people that are, shall we say, a little eccentric, maybe a little out of the box? Yeah, well, that's a great question also. And I think it's because Minnesota is a populist state. And there's nothing wrong with the term populist. It means for the people reflecting the people's will. And Minnesota has elected some quirky people. Initially, a lot of people thought Paul Wellstone was quirky. I think he. Oh, well, right. Of course. Class. Yeah. And in any event, um, I think it's a forerunner of what you're seeing now. It was sort of an early canary, uh, not in the coal mine necessarily, but an early warning of the rise of populism in the country more broadly. I think Jesse Ventura although he's very different than Trump in terms of his political views and stances, has some of the same um, sort of political chemistry with the people as as Trump does. And I think, you know, that was a forerunner to what we're seeing unfolding now. And I think once Biden is gone, there's going to be a rise of populism on the left, further populism on the left as well. So um, I think that's just to say, yes, Minnesota is a little quirky, but I also think they, they embraced populism probably earlier than big chunks of the rest of the country. You're still a very young man, certainly far too young to run for president, at least by probably by about uh, two decades these days, given the average age of uh, the major party candidates for president. You ran 16 years ago. As I mentioned, you were on everybody's shortlist for vice president in 2008. A lot of people's shortlist for vice president in 2012. Why didn't you run again? So many people who don't get the nomination the first time, Democrat and Republican, end up taking another shot and a lot of times are more successful. John McCain, Mitt Romney, Hillary Clinton. Why not give uh, going for the presidency another go? Well, I I gave it a good shot uh, as best I could anyhow in 2012. Um, I needed to move on and get into the private sector to take care of my family, Frank, to be blunt about it. I'm not one of these politicians who had a lot of money or inherited money or anything like that. And, uh, I needed to go get a real job, <laughs> and to be honest about it. And also, you know, time marches on just because you're popular in a moment in time. Four years is an eternity in politics. A new group rises up, you know, new governors, new senators, new other people. And so time marches on. And the ability to, to catch uh, a wave a second time, not, not that I caught it the first time, um, you know, was nothing, uh, not certain. So, But the, the real honest, candid answer is I needed to go get a real job. Mm. Uh, understandable. Trust me, uh, I, I can absolutely relate. Let me ask you what, about what's happening in the presidential race these days. Nikki Haley, uh, she was defeated soundly in um, in South Carolina. Looks like she's probably going to suffer the same fate in Michigan. 
Do you think uh, now the Koch brothers have announced that uh, they'd been funding her candidacy? Uh, they've announced that they're going to instead focus their resources. And I, I realize there's only one Koch brother, but the Koch brothers network, they're going to focus their resources on the congressional races. Do you think Haley ends up staying in with the news that the Koch network is going to fund the congressional races instead of her presidential candidacy? I think she will stay in at least through March 5th because she's otherwise raising enough money to stay in. Candidates don't drop out uh, almost without exception until they run out of money. And she's raised uh, millions of dollars just since her South Carolina defeat in her home state. And I like Nikki Haley. I think she'd be a great president. I wish she was the party's nominee, but she's not going to get there uh, absent some very strange set of developments. So she has enough money to stay in. I think at some point she has to weigh staying in. You know, uh, and any damage that might do versus a graceful exit. And normally you get out if you think you might be selected vice president, assuming, you know, you still have money because you don't want to annoy. You don't want to right. annoy the likely nominee by continuing to oppose him or her in the primary contest. But in this case, uh, Trump has indicated, or at least his people have, uh, that they will not likely select her. And she's indicated she's not that interested in VP. So, you know, that normal incentive to get out and compliment the likely nominee uh, goes out the window in this case as well. So I think she could hang around as long as she wants. But once it becomes mathematically obvious that Trump's going to be the nominee, there doesn't seem to be a lot of point to it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Well, so let's talk about that, right? I mean, I'm glad she's staying in the race because I wish uh, that everybody would stay in the race to give voters that are in late primary states an opportunity to vote, Democrat and Republican. It kills me, and I say this every cycle, that uh, by the time the New York primary comes around, uh, you know, Tim Pawlenty's not in there. By the time the New Jersey primary comes around, um, you know, uh, Howard Dean's not in there. Whoever your favorite candidate might be, it seems like the field gets so winnowed down before or 80 or 90% of Americans get to vote. In the case of Nikki Haley, though, what I'm struggling to understand is why she's still running. She's very likely not going to be the vice president, very likely not going to be in a Trump cabinet, although with Trump, who knows? Um, What is she doing? Is this for building her own profile? Is this for waging some sort of an ideological uh, battle? Obviously, uh, you can't know her state of mind anywhere, any, you know, any more than I do. But you do know what it's like to run a national political campaign and be incredibly um, unlikely to be victorious. Why does she stay in the race, in your view? 
Well, one answer might be Trump is set to go to trial on March 25th. I don't know that she'll stay in that long, but in the in the documents case, I think it is. And let's say he gets convicted. There are some polling that suggests that a significant additional increment of Republicans would abandon him, his candidacy, if he actually is criminally convicted. I'm not sure he's going to be convicted. Um, so maybe, you know, there's a one or two percent chance that or something else unpredictable or strange happens to Trump and she just wants to be the last person around. You know, keep keep in mind there's political precedent for you know unexpected developments happening late in the campaign. Look at the Bill Clinton Gary Hart situation where there's a you know last not a last minute but late development and Clinton ends up being the, um, the president of the United States. But I, I do think your point is well taken. I think she's going to hang around through March 5th to kind of put a further marker out there about her brand, who she is, her role in the party. And frankly, uh, for four years from now, trying to say I'm the heir apparent for four years from now, I think the hardcore Trump people have a lot to say about that and would well, you know, will want somebody else. But at least she'll have sort of captured or at least uh, put a marker out for the part of the market that is, you know, not Trump people as, as the Republican Party potentially resets in the future. Uh, you bring up such an interesting an interesting point, which is the Republican Party after Trump on a lot of issues. Nikki Haley is very much kind of uh, an old school Republican. And when I say old school, I don't mean going back to the 50s or the 60s, but I'm talking about going back to the early 2000s. Ideologically, stylistically, she's much more similar to a George H.W. Bush, a Mitt Romney, a John McCain. And it's clear that's not where the Republican Party electorate is right now. Uh, Trump has moved the Republican Party into a much more populist direction in terms of ideology, in terms of its constituency, rather than appeal to the super wealthy country club types, the blue blood elitists, you're much more likely to see working class and middle class folks uh, gravitate to the Republican Party. A lot of folks that would have traditionally been thought of as Democratic voters. My question for you is, where do you see the GOP going after Trump, whether Trump wins in 2024 or whether he loses four years from now? Are we going to see the GOP going back to running for candidates for president and the Senate that are more like a Romney, Haley, McCain, Jeb Bush style candidate? Or has Trump permanently changed the party into his image? Where do you see it going as a guy that's been in Republican politics your whole career? I do think that in part depends on whether Trump wins or loses. I also think it depends on how he and the economy and the country perform in a next term. And I also think it depends on who he picks as VP. And if he picks somebody who is a Trump uh, loyalist, but is also you know, marketable to a broader political audience and demographic audience, then I think that leaves the door wide open to the continuation of you know, the Trump change in the party or Trump 2.0 in the form of, uh, you know, a VP or somebody else who rises from that fold. I, I think the likelihood of it going back to what it was is small because nothing stays the same. Everything evolves and changes, including political parties. The idea that's just going back to what it was, I think, is, is probably naive or unrealistic. Um, I do think, though, that there will be a battle about whether it's going to be more like Trump or more like what you mentioned. But the Trump people have a lot of energy. And uh, if he but now if, if he loses and loses poor, badly, then you know, there may be some reflex to try something different, including defaulting backwards. But I think the more likely scenario is the first one I just went through. 
You attempted a political comeback in 2018. You tried to run for for governor, and uh, if memory serves, you were not successful in a Republican primary. That was after the Trump wave had swept the GOP nationally. Do you think that the fact that the Republican Party of Minnesota, which you were very popular with during your your tenure as governor and throughout your whole political career, the fact that they went with another candidate was that an example of how the GOP had changed from the time that you left office to the time that you tried to make a comeback? Or were there other factors involved in that unsuccessful gubernatorial comeback? Well, I think I think the fact that the party had become a Trump party, I had said negative things uh, initially about uh, then-candidate Trump back in 2016, if I'm recalling the years correctly, um, and that cost me dearly. And the, the primary base, the caucus attendee base, you know, had become overwhelmingly Trump folks. And I was, uh, I think, on the wrong side of that equation, political equation, by having expressed uh, concern and also uh, be making critical comments about Trump. So, as I said, when I lost that primary, you know, it's Trump's party. I don't fit in it. And that those election results, I think, reflected primarily that reality. When you were governor, you went down to Mexico. You met with the Mexican president at the time, Vicente Fox. When we think of border issues and immigration issues, we tend to think of places that are border states like uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, or we tend to think of places that a lot of illegal immigrants or migrants might gravitate towards, like New York City, for instance, maybe Chicago. Um what is the what is the border situation and the migrant situation like on a daily basis in Minnesota? Do you guys see the daily effects of what's going on at the border? And more broadly, what do you think should be done on the border question, whether the president's Biden, whether the president's Trump or whether it's somebody else? What would you do to fix the border? It's a great question. It also reflects, I think, an issue, one of the main issues that are going to be processed in this upcoming election, and it should be. Um, Vicente Fox did come to Minnesota. I didn't go to Mexico. He came to Minnesota and uh, had a chance to meet with him then. My mistake. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I ran multiple campaigns based on the notion that we have to get tough on immigration. We have to get uh, put a security first perspective on illegal immigration. And of course, we want to have orderly legal immigration in our country within a reasonable amount. But what we have now is out of control chaos. It is lawlessness. It undermines the rule of law in ways that uh, begins to erode confidence and also respect from others when they see this sort of flagrant violations. And it's a massive security problem. And it's gone from a few hundred thousand people a year estimated to a few million people a year. And we only have 360 million people in the country. And if you import two or three million people in, most of them illegal uh, that's a major challenge and a major problem. And guess where a lot of the pressure is coming on social services, on public safety, on hospitals and government budgets. It's not unrelated to the rise in, uh, you know, migrants, including illegal immigrants. Right. And so and I, and I think they are making a mockery in many cases of the refugee system you know, originally intended to be a protective opportunity for people coming from war torn countries. And now it's just flaunted, uh, you know, recklessly and obviously and almost in a comical fashion, sad, tragic fashion. Um, and I think the fact that our federal government refuses 
to do anything about it is outrageous and it's reckless and it's irresponsible. When I was governor, I sent the National Guard to the border to help out Texas or Arizona. I can't remember which one it was to reinforce the border. But the federal government needs to act to secure that border. And we need to make sure that we have a clear understanding of how many people we want to come in, that they come in legally, that the process is orderly, that it's fair, and that the people coming in are not a security concern or a security risk. And so I, I have um, you know, a lot of agitation, like a lot of Americans do, about the failure of our federal government to properly address this issue. Lastly, sir, and you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Uh, Obviously, you are a Minnesotan. You know the Minneapolis-St. Paul audience very well, especially on WCCO. We'd certainly like to have the same sort of success in terms of ratings and everything else in terms of impact in Minneapolis that we've had in New York and a lot of other cities around the country. Uh, sincerely, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to uh, how to put out there what Minnesotans like. Uh, any secret code language or any secret <laughs> terms that I can sneak into broadcast, subliminal or otherwise, that may help me yes. appeal to the uh, Minnesota audience. Yes, I think you should regularly work into your show uh, reaction uh, ufta. You don't even need to worry about what it means. You can just utter it. It's, does, it's not profane or inappropriate anyway. When somebody makes a point that is, uh, you know, troubling or concerning or maybe uh, is something that's unsettling to you, you can say oofda. I think you can talk oofda. a lot about lutefisk, uh, which is a, you know, you, you can do your research on that. I think you can say skull endlessly and people will appreciate that. And then you can talk about, you know, hot dishes, people like that, and cold weather, winter. There's a lot of people love to talk about weather in Minnesota and much more, Frank. But that'll get the ball rolling for you. I love it. Love it. Uh, Governor Tim Pawlenty, thanks so much. I hope we can talk again. Anytime. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.